This is Colonia Cast, episode 39. Today we are joined by Dr. Juliana Sterling, who is a researcher with the National Scientific and Technical Research Council of Argentina, uh, based out of the Museum of Ejidio Ferruglio. Dr. Sterling has done a lot of work with fossil turtles and turtle paleontology, as well as global turtle phylogenetics, and more specifically with the biogeography and phylogenetics of papyridires and chelid species. Uh, so we're really excited to talk to her today. Thanks for coming on. Oh, thank you very much for your invitation. And it's an honor, honor to participate. Thank you. So, Dr. Sterley, what first got you interested in turtles and what made you decide to pursue uh, studying turtle biology and evolution? Well, uh, since uh, a little uh, child, I was interested in paleontology. So I decided to study paleontology as a uni at the university. And when I was studying, I, I was interested in doing field work. So and my first field work was in 2001, so more than 20 years ago. And in that fieldwork, we went to a Jurassic, Middle Jurassic outcrop in Patagonia that is uh, very famous, uh, it's Queso Rachado locality, where you can find many like small vertebrates. And among the fossils that you can find in that locality, turtles are very, very uh, abundant. So you can find different parts of the shell, and even skulls that are very rare in the fossil record. So I was there and the leader of the fieldwork was um, Guillermo Rocher. He studies uh, mammals. So he offered me to study those turtles um, that were really, really nice with skulls and uh, almost complete shells. So I started to get involved with turtles and when I came back to the university, I contacted Dr. Marcelo de la Fuente and he is a leader in the study of fossil turtles in Argentina and South America and he's also known globally. So I started um, a contact with him and uh, studying these uh, turtles from the Middle Jurassic, uh, Queso Rayado uh, locality in in Patagonia. And after that, I, as I was in my last years of the university, I decided to do, to study those turtles more in detail. And I did my PhD on those remains that now they are known as Condorcelis Antiqua. That's real interesting. <laughs> and it's looking at some of the, the amount of fossil turtles that have come out of sort of southern uh, south america a lot of it w from your work and mm -hmm. others that work close with you is it's really interesting and it's it's helped a, a lot in terms of contextualizing how turtles are related in general um mm -hmm. maybe we can sort of start with because you've also done work with the global phylogeny of turtles mm -hmm. and in order to sort of segue into that conversation it's it's good to uh just talk about how a phylogeny is constructed. And with turtles in particular, it's been sort of challenging. There's unique challenges. Uh, you can speak to that. But 
I'm curious, um, sort of, what do you think about using molecular versus morphological data to construct turtle phylogenies? What are the advantages of both different sources of data and, and sort of how is that it relevant to the question of turtle relationships? Well, in, um, I think that it's very important to consider all sources of evidence to, to look for the phylogenetic relationship of turtles. Of course, maybe the most common for, for us, for paleontologists, is morphology, because it's what we get in the fossil record, mainly the bones. But as turtles have um, extant species as well, they, they live today, they live today, I think it's really, really important to consider also the information coming from uh, molecules and also from the soft part of the, of the body, hmm? as well as other characters that could be used as eco ecology, ethology, like many other sources of characters. As uh, I'm a paleontologist, of course, I'm more uh, used to morphological characters from hard parts as the shell and the skull bones and so on. But I also consider very important to include this molecular data that are usually they are available uh, in gene bank or, or other sources. So I would use both data when, uh, for example, I'm working with some group of turtles that have extant representatives. For example, kilids. I try to, I yeah, I try to use both set of data. Sometimes it's really difficult to use both. Like for, like um, I would say for testudines, for all the crown group, it's really difficult because the molecular data have a certain signal for the relationships of turtles, while the morpho morphology has another signal. So when we put all together, they could create um, some, between brackets, weird results that are not expected. So yeah, if you can, I would suggest to use all the data that is available, but sometimes is uh, not possible. Right, that's... Uh interesting to think about and it's yeah just getting more and that that's where sort of a lot of molecular analyses or morphological analyses make a lot of assumptions about how turtles are related and just use extant species but you have come in and used fossil species and then you have to use a lot of morphology for that and that mm -hmm. can it, it it's a good thing it seems like for phylogenetic analyses to include fossils but it, it also creates more challenges. Um, you mentioned some issues that can arise. Uh, and I'm curious what's sort of the major issues based on different types of data in the turtle phylogeny are that, that you've come across. Yes, well, for example, um, two clear examples of these uh, different results that we can get uh, using morphology only or mole molecules only in phylogenetic analysis is the position of, uh, for example, the long-necked 
chelates. Uh, if we consider only molecular data, we will see that the um, chelates from South America form a, a monophyletic group, while the chelates from Australasia form another monophyletic uh, group. And each of these two clades have a species with long necks. While if we consider the morphology in morphological phylogenetic analysis, we will get that these long-necked chelates form a, a monophyletic group. So this monophyletic group has species from South America and from Australasia. So you can see two different hypotheses and two different uh, evolutionary histories in that. And the other very um, like usual um, different hypothesis in, in turtle evolution is the position of trianicians uh, among cryptodires. If we consider the molecular data, uh, trianicians are the most basal clade of uh, cryptodires, while if we use only morphological data, trianicians are well nested inside the cryptodir uh, clade. So two sources of evidence, two different uh, stories about the evolution. That's why it's good to put all together to have only one. But sometimes it, it's, it's difficult. Right, that, that yeah, and the, the current consensus with the trinechia, what do you think the most likely uh, relationships are for, for that group? That's been sort of a dilemma in turtle evolution. Yeah, well, if we see also the, the fossil record, there are some authors that consider some turtles from the middle late Jurassic from China belonging to this um, uh, lineage of turtles, the Trianicians, and they are among the oldest uh, cryptodires. So if you consider that also um, a source of evidence, paleontology, would we'll say, okay, maybe the oldest cryptodires are uh, belonging to this lineage. But again, I think we should make a, a total evidence analysis to, to see really where they, they belong. Um, we have tried to do that, like total evidence analysis of uh, testudines, but it's really, really difficult. Um, the relationships that we get are, are, are very unorthodox, <laughs> so we are keep on working on that to see if we can improve the, the result and include more, more sources of evidence. Yeah, that sort of raises a lot of questions in terms of just where different clades arose along the tree. Something you pointed out in one of your papers that I found pretty interesting was that the, uh, and you spoke a bit to this by saying that, actually, we haven't really touched on this, but uh, the pleurodires, uh, they could be nested, you could have a paraphyletic cryptodira, and that, that seems like it sort of goes against a lot of just assumptions of previous studies. And I, I'm sort of curious, what are the odds of that being the case? And what sort of lines of evidence are there to for a paraphyletic cryptodira versus a, a 
which is generally assumed monophyletic cryptodira. Well, yeah, that's one of the problems of that, the things I'm saying about um, uh, analyzing molecules and morphology altogether mm-hmm. in a phylogenetic context. Um, unfortunately, maybe the morphological phylogenies, these more like a global phylogenies, um, do not have yet as much characters as we need to solve this issue. Um, although maybe with molecules we have more data because the, the sequences are well, have many, many characters, although not all are informative, okay? Um, we don't have so many data in um, with um, morphological data yet. So what I when I did that uh, paper about the, this total evidence uh, analysis in, in Charles, I pointed out that um, in in that case when we put all the information together, uh, pleurodars will, were nested inside cryptodars. But I think that's more an artifact of the of the analysis and the methodology I used, that is uh, parsimony, um, rather than a, a real like result or uh, history. We need to consider that um, each method has its uh, its own uh, flaws, <laughs> and right. we need to. To consider that and we need to see okay uh, nowadays we have other methodologies as Bayesian analysis or maximum likelihood maybe to analyze molecules um, and also to include all uh, morphology as well in in those models um, so nowadays maybe we have other other methodologies to analyze that data because that was like a, a while ago, that paper. Um, <laughs> so I think it's more that, and if we consider the um, the relationships in in an, an unrooted tree, as I showed in in that paper, we get the more or less the the, the same relate interrelationships among the extant clades, among the I would say the largest extant clades and it seems that's related with the root that the crown clade gets when fossils are included so it seems the inclusion of fossils in in this um, total evidence analysis modifies how the this clade testudines is rooted so in in that it changes the 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 root of the tree and pleurodiers get inside cryptodiers. Uh, but okay, nowadays maybe we can al- analyze it better with more morphological data and with newer molecular data and another methodology maybe and get uh, different results. So, right, the, it sort of gives a different including the fossils, it, it's really interesting to look at because you see the split between the two major suborders or Pleuridae and Cryptodira is a lot further down the tree than you would assume. And you've got a lot of fossil groups of turtles that are outside of that sort of diversification. Um, 
sort of curious there's a lot of different species you've worked with melaniforms and other groups of turtles and th those sort of all seem to fall outside of the the split between Pleurodira and cryptodira um where do those those groups fall and what are some of the major uh fossil turtles in that in that assemblage of uh stem turtles well yeah the thing is that um, the knowledge about turtles and the evolution have changed maybe during the last, I would say, 40 years. Maybe 40 years ago, we had like um, an idea that there were two clades and all um, living and extant turtles uh, were belonging either to cryptodar or to pleurodars. But during the last I would say, yeah, 20 or more years, new fossils were found and also new interpretations of old fossils appeared. And with uh, the cladistic studies and the use of computers to do cladistic studies, um, the, this like a previous idea about these two groups and, uh, has changed a little bit. So now we know that uh, we have these two main clades, pleurodars and cryptodars, but we also have many, many other groups in the stem that are outside this, uh, the, what we call the crown group, Testudines. So among them, we have these Triassic turtles that are the oldest that we know, Proganochilis, Paleocersis, Proterochersis, and then we have other uh, turtles along this uh, stem. We have Cayentaquilis, that is from the US. You might know about it. But before it was considered a cryptodar. Now we, we consider it belonging to the stem. And among these uh, turtles from the stem, I'm, uh, I'm focused in the evolution of Mayolaniforms that are, um, I would say that the, the most famous Mayolaniforms are the Mayolanids, that are these terrestrial giant turtles uh, that have horns and also their tails are covered by tail rings and they have also a tail club at the end of the tail. So, um, and again, these Mayolanids before were considered cryptodirs, but now we know or we think <laughs> that they belong in this stem. So this stem is really, really uh, diverse. It's, it's interesting that it's so diverse, but that a lot of those families or groups, I mean, they're pretty species and they're no longer around um, mm -hmm. for it's sort of a context uh, dependent question, like family or clade specific, but what, what are some hypotheses you have about how they, they went extinct? Well, there are like uh, different hypotheses for like for different groups because uh, these groups or these turtles were, went extinct like in different times. Yeah, because they, this from the Triassic went went extinct in the Triassic. Um, and these Mayolanids lived until 
like kind of recent times, right? Like uh, to the Pleistocene, even the Holocene. So um, there are different hypotheses for for each group. In in general, we can say that um, these, of course, uh, climatic changes uh, played a role in the extinction of of many clades, right? But we should know which particular clade we are speaking about to see if we have another like kind of explanation for for that. Um, but I would say that climatic changes could uh, could be a, um, a source of these uh, extinctions uh, for for many clades. Interesting. Yeah, I, I know uh, Jack is pretty interested in that, that the Melanids. Uh, and it just I'm curious, like, what do you think about the odds of uh, people uh, for, for that group specifically uh, playing into the, the extinction of those? Because they were I mean, they, they were in areas where you had settlements and um, and humans. Well, um, yeah, there was a paper saying that Mayolanids were living with humans in in this area of Vanuatu, in, uh, yeah. in the southeast of um, southwest, sorry, of the Pacific. But actually, we we have seen the publication, and we consider that those fossils are actually they are not Mayolanids. They are actually testudinids, so they are uh, tortoises, basically, yeah. <laughs> that they live today. Um, so that's the only settlement where they can kind of prove that these uh, turtles were together with humans. But in, in our opinion, they are not Miolanids. They are yeah. Uh, tortoises, testudinids. So until now, there is no evidence of the um, uh, the of humans and Mijolanids being together uh, in the same time. So it, it seems that Mijolanids uh, went extinct before the the arrival of of humans in in Australasia. On the topic of yeah, the, yeah, the, myelanids, uh, there was no, there was no evidence that they coexisted with humans on New Caledonia at all either. Like those are those the same yeah. fossils you're referring to? Like uh, those were tortoise fossils throughout most of those islands? Yeah, no, no, no. The, there is no evidence so far. Um, I I can I can share a, a paper that we did. It's a, it's more like. Um, uh, it's a scientific paper, it's more an outreach paper that yeah. you can, um, and we say, <laughs> we discuss all this, and it's it's interesting because it has, we have this idea that they lived together, but yeah. no, we, uh, some of the fossils, we cannot identify if they belong to tortoises or, or mayolanids, in, in, in some cases, but in those cases that we can 
identify the fossils that are the, for example, femora that are very characteristic of testudinids. So there is no doubt that they are testudinids. Um, so, yeah. I think the idea of humans and Mayolanids it's much cooler. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> with testudinids, but unfortunately, oh, they didn't meet at well, least what we know so far. I think that's going to be one of the best pieces of information to come out of this podcast, at least for some of our viewers are really going to appreciate that. Um, but kind of taking it in a different direction still on the topic of myelinids, I was reading mm -hmm. one of your papers. Uh, I found the hypertrophy nasal cavity to be really mm -hmm. interesting and that uh, it may have had implications for like the, it was the climate, not necessarily like olfactory use a bit. Yeah, well, we have um, we have scanned uh, uh, these skulls of myelinids, uh, a species from Argentina, one species from um, Australia, and we have seen that when we reconstruct the inner inner cavities of the skull, we can see that the nasal cavity. It's really, really expanded, really big yeah. compared with the rest of the, of the, I would say, the brain and other cavities. Um, so it was like a very, like um, we were very surprised about that and said, so, okay, let's compare with some ecologically equivalents that could be the testudinids today. So. We also scanned some testudinids, and we also saw that those the testudinids also have like a big nasal cavities uh, in uh, in their I would say in their heads, and they are really big compared with other turtles that are not terrestrials, right? The marine or uh, aquatic turtles. So we were trying to see if there was a correlation with the environment or with the behavior maybe, because the, nas the nasal cavity has uh, receptors for, for smell, of course, and also the, it's related with um, breathing. So it has many functions in the, in the cavity. Yeah. So we wanted to see if there could be a, a relationship with environment or with behavior. And we said that in, in other reptiles, when they have these big cavities, they are related with um, that they live in more arid environments than um, other species from the same group living in more humid environments. So we were saying that we don't know, we don't really know, we can hypothesize that they could be related with a more arid environment because in, by that, that time in Patagonia, uh, the, the climate uh, was going to be a little more arid than before. There was a, a climatic change in Patagonia by, by that time and also in Australasia. So we said, okay, could be that. And it could be also related with uh, some behavior 
like for example this um, mate mating behavior that the studinids have that they smell at each other they also have some um, um, they can be like heat each other um, so we were also exploring that possibility that okay maybe it's related with the sense of smell of, of these uh, turtles but okay as we don't have the the soft parts uh, it's difficult for us to to test those hypotheses so we are like uh, in, in this in in this phase that we are exploring and comparing and suggesting some possible hypotheses about this en enlarged uh, nasal cavity. It's a little, uh, I just got back from uh, Belize where I was doing some field work mm -hmm. and the, the sliders there, the mm -hmm. males have these really pronounced bosses on the, the in, that's more of the external nares. But mm -hmm. you're saying that like the internal nares is is yeah. is, is expanded. So what? Yeah. I mean, the, the sliders. It seems like it's sort of a mating thing because uh, it's sexually dimorphic. But mm -hmm. this could be something else if it's more internal. Uh, that, yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, you've done a lot of sort of cutting edge uh, or been a part of projects doing pretty cutting edge analysis of fossil material. Uh, one thing that that was pretty interesting going through your work is you've done some like neuroanatomy where you can scan a skull and construct a you can get a reconstruction of how the nerves were wired. I'm curious how that's informed our understanding of, of, uh, of fossil turtles or fossil chelids. Well, it's a good question. The, the thing is that if we compare the, um, the amount of data that now we have about the neuroanatomy of turtles, I would say more uh, like based on fossil turtles, um, is still little if we compare the information that, for example, um, we have from dinosaurs. So I think we are still in this uh, phase that we are gathering information in different groups and I guess maybe in the in next years we will have a better idea about how informative this uh, the neuroanatomy of fossil turtles uh, is. Um, with the information that we have now we can see that for example um, they are pretty conservative in general. We cannot uh, we cannot differentiate yet between uh, different morphologies, for example, in the inner ear between marine or terrestrial turtles. Although you can see some differences, they are difficult to measure yet. And we cannot say 100% uh, sure if an extinct species was marine or terrestrial based on the, on the inner ear. Um, so there we, we need more data. We still need more data to figure it out. Uh, on the other hand, it seems that the, we can see differences that can be uh, transformed in phylogenetic characters. 
and to see if they are um, useful in phylogenetic analysis. We, have, we haven't done yet that. So I think the, that would be the next step to gather more information about more uh, extinct and also extant uh, turtles. Because what the problem with this um, reconstructing the, the inner cavities of the skull in reptiles is that the, the brain and other soft tissues in the, in the inner part of the skull are not like 100% um, or they don't reflect 100% the shape of the inner cavity. For example, the brain has not the exact, exact shape of the, um, of the cavity. So what we are reconstructing is not exactly a brain <laughs> because there, there were many other tissues around. So we need to scan like extant turtles that they have the brain and other tissues associated to see the, um, the relationship and the correlation of the brain and other soft, and, and other soft tissues in this inner cavity. So there are many, many questions to be answered uh, before, like uh, exploring, uh, for example, the ecology or phylogeny of these inner structures. Can you get, um, I, I believe it's either 12 or 14 primary sensory nerves that the turtles have in the skull. Mm -hmm. Is there, is that, so that's conserved through fossil turtles or is there any, are there anything, are there any universal features you see in fossil turtles with regard to the, the nerves that are just different than modern extant turtles? No, I would say that the, the, the general bulk plan is the same. What is different, but unfortunately, um, there are not so many good fossils to test that, is that, for example, in one specimen of Proganochilis, this Triassic turtle, that is one of the oldest, and in Cayentaquilis from the US, it seems they had the, another bone that is not ossified anymore in extant turtles and many other fossil turtles, that is the laterosphenoid. That it's a, a bone that is located in the, uh, I would say, like in between the orbits, more or less, in that location in, in turtles. And that bone was, um, through that bone, were going out some nerves that we, we cannot see in any other turtle. So it seems that this more basal, turtles, they had this laterosphenoid ossified, so that was different. But unfortunately, we know only those two cases, and they are not so well preserved to, uh, to be explored in, in more detail. But I would say that would be the main change uh, that occurred, that in, um, in, I would say, yeah, 
turtles from the middle Jurassic onwards, they do not ossify this laterosphenoid. So the nerves that are going out and uh, in, in that region of the skull, uh, we cannot trace them in this um, um, neuroanatomy reconstructions in the, in the, that we do in, in the fossil turtles. That's really interesting that you can go back and get that detailed. I mean, you have some level of uncertainty, but that you can essentially use the, the holes in the skull where those nerves and, and, and veins and such would pass, and mm -hmm. you figure out the, the structure of those things. Really fascinating. Um, yeah, that yeah, it's it's interesting to think about it. Some, so you mentioned the um, you've also done some work with the the basis phenoid, the the, uh, the the parabasis phenoid complex, and that that we had a previous guest on that talked a bit about the evolution of the turtle shell uh, mm -hmm. and how the there's different types of ossification that have have formed a union, uh, and that's allowed for this interesting evolution that's not seen in other vertebrates um but there are some kind of parallels uh to that kind of ossification in your work with the the paravasis phenoid complex maybe you can talk to that and why that structure is interesting yeah well the the paravasis phenoid is interesting because um we use a lot in uh, in the cladistic analysis about turtle evolution, how is the, um, the location of the, the entrance of the carotid arteries in the skull of turtles? So it's a character that has been used many times and it, it was like um, having a lot of attention. <laughs> if the carotid uh, entered in the basis phenoid or in the protic or in the pterygoid and um, the, the main clades, uh, I would say like cryptodeers and pleurodeers were defined by that and also the paracryptodeers and, and the basal uh, turtles. So as I was working on this phylogeny uh, for, uh, to see if Condorcalis was a cryptodeer as uh, Gaffney was saying about Cayentaquilis because they were very similar. Uh, or if it was more basal, I was exploring a lot about uh, these uh, carotid characters. Um, so looking um, to fossils and to um, extant uh, turtles, I was like seeing that when I was looking at the basis phenoid, it appeared that it was actually two, two bones fused. And in some fossil turtles, it was really, really evident that it was like a more like a squarish bone, a thick bone, that was the basis phenoid. And below that, it was more like a elongated bone, thinner, and um, yeah, it was kind of different. So I started to try to see that in more detail. Um, and we sc mi uh, micro CT scanned skulls and we were looking uh, that in more detail. 
Well, and we, we came with this uh, hypothesis that it was actually that the, the basisphenoid was actually um, formed by the basisphenoid and also the, para, the parasphenoid, forming this parabasisphenoid. And as you were saying, the basisphenoid is an autostosic bone that is formed uh, before it was a cartilage and now it's a bone, but the parabasisphenoid is a membranous uh, bone. So it's a mixture of two kinds of bone in one. And we also hypothesized that the, the development of this basisphenoid trapped the carotid artery, mainly in the, I would say, in the cryptodiran lineage, and moved the entrance of these this carotid arteries towards the posterior, towards the pterygoid and towards the posterior part of the skull, like giving some protection between brackets to this very important artery <laughs> that gives all the, the uh, takes all the blood uh, to the skull, right? So we, uh, we proposed that and we have, we have also explored how was the case in other vertebrates as well about this artery uh, because, okay, it's, it's a really important character. It's really interesting to uh, analyze specific morphological characters. It's one thing to create a matrix of 150 different morphological situations and then just use that in an analysis but it's another thing to actually look into all of those characters and how the, those things have changed and what the functional significance of those characters is and in this case how the the character changes has changed other aspects in terms of the arterial anatomy it's really fascinating i that that sort of brings it back to uh a question that i i I ask a lot in terms of like how people uh, when you're constructing like a morphological phylogeny, you assume that there, there's certain assumptions that underlie the test to throw out certain characters that are homoplasious. And then it, it narrows into certain things that are synapomorphic that are informative for different groups of turtles. I'm curious what that, how does that process work in that analysis? How do you know what characters are informative versus which are not for, yeah. Well, um, you don't know uh, a priori if a character is informative or not, uh, because that you will test it when you run the cladistic analysis or Okay, so the first step is to uh, build your matrix to find the morphological characters. And that's a very like comparative anatomy, <laughs> plain comparative anatomy. Like you see, okay, this um, neural one in, in this case contact uh, costal one only and okay, but uh, there are some other turtles where neural one also contacts uh, costal two. 
So, okay, I will propose a character that is neural one contacting costal one and neural one contacting costal one and two. So first you create the characters and then you see, of course, the, the characters are related with the, your sample. If you are only analyzing one family, you will try to see the, um, um, how diverse your family is and which characters can be used for that family. So you narrow your, your study, you define your characters, and then you run the analysis, the cladistic analysis. And that's where the, the result will tell you if the, the, some characters are synapomorphic or not for a certain group. So a priori, you don't know. It's just, uh, it's what we say, like, uh, um, it's the first step to establish a homology, right? It's comparative anatomy. But then the second stem to see if those characters are hom uh, homologous or not is the cladistic analysis. Uh, if you run the analysis and you see that, okay, ah, this character, neural one contacting costal one and two, is only present in one clade, you can see, you can say that it's a synapomorphy for that clade. Uh, but beforehand, you cannot be uh, sure. And a character that could be synapomorphic in one context with a more, I would say, um, a reduced sample cannot, maybe in a, when you include more species, it's no longer a synapomorphic for that clade only, but could be also a synapomorphic for another clade. Hmm? So it depends right. on the context as well. Yeah, that makes sense. There's sort of variable different techniques that have been used through time to to analyze uh, how phylogenetically informative characters are. Uh, it's sort of, that's an area of development, but that it's something that's more, anal it's borne out through analysis uh, and not personal decision. It's, it, that's something that's more of a, sort of a analytical artifact. Um, yeah, so, okay, that, that, that makes sense. Um, I'm sort of switching focus a bit more and maybe going back to the major turtle phylogeny, you've also done some work with dating uh, different splits, specifically mm -hmm. the split between cryptodires, pleuridires, the chronotestidines. And it, there, you found some, there's some conflicting results there with molecular and morphological and total evidence uh, phylogenies. I'm curious why you think that there uh, are, are, what, first of all, what have you found in that area and why do you think there's, incongruence between the, the different lines of evidence? Well, sometimes it's the, um, the evidence that the, each researcher uses for uh, dating a, a tree. For example, sometimes um, if you do, if you are a molecular biologist and you also, you only consider the molecules as evidence and you go and see and search in the fossil record, which is the oldest, I don't know, trionician. Um, but you 
so you so, consider okay this is the oldest trionician i will include so i will put in my matrix this is the the oldest date for this clade but maybe no one has included that species in a cladistic analysis so you don't know actually if that species is a, a trionician or not so um, maybe they use a fossil that is no longer considered a trionician to date that node, so they can have a, a different result. Uh, so that could be uh, one of the problems. They could use, uh, it's usually related with that, like to use fossils that are not included in phylogenies. So you don't know exactly which node this fossil is uh, dating. Um, and then you have, of course, difference, uh, differences uh, based on different methodologies. Is, um, this, if you use um, a molecular clocks, you will get some results. <laughs> different if you use, I don't know, um, this, I would say, by hand to calibrate the tree by hand based on the taxa you have in, in your phylogeny. So there are differences like in the taxa you include, in the phylogenies, and also um, sometimes the, um, the ages of the formations where the fossils are found uh, are not uh, accurate. I don't know. In the, in the original paper, it was published as this fossil coming from the late Cretaceous, but I don't know, five years later, they, they do like um, a dating of, the, of that formation and they say, oh no, actually is um, uh, no, late Jurassic. So you have a difference in time. So I think there are many, many different things that could um, uh, lead to different results. So when we, when we compare different results, we need to take all that into, into account. Right, uh, yeah. And, and, and so in terms of the actual times uh, for the split, that's one that's, uh, there's a lot of variability on it. And it seems like you found that maybe it was a bit later than expected uh, maybe you can just shed some light on that. Yes, well, um, if we, in, in, in general, I would say, like really general, when um, we use molecules to date, to calibrate trees, we will get older dates than using the fossils or morphology because of the, um, the methodology and the algorithms they, they use. Um, in, in this uh, uh, methodology that we developed, uh, that uh, our main concern was this about the phylogenetic position of the species in the trees. So, for example, um, as I was telling you before, sometimes with the, with the fossils, what we have is that the fossils are fragmentary. Maybe we don't have the whole animal. So we cannot score the whole animal in our matrix. So that taxon might jump 
from one position to another. So maybe in one analysis, one turtle is inside, is inside Phryonychia, and sometimes it goes outside. Um, so if you use that fossil to calibrate uh, Trionychia, uh, well, maybe it's not so good because in some analysis it goes outside. So we wanted to test that in, 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 in that research. So we were exploring this uh, bootstrap uncertainty range to see if um, we, we pick a certain node and explore uh, the ages that were calculated for that node, considering or not some species inside. So uh, we, do, we didn't give like a, a certain, only one date for a node, but a range, a minimal, a minimum and maximum range of ages for that node. Because sometimes you have some fossils that go in and out of a specific clade. And with that, we consider that um, it would be useful to use it uh, when fossils are included in phylogenies. And we want to calibrate and to see uh, when a node was um, originated. Um, so with that, using bootstrap replicates, uh, we can explore uh, the age of, of the node. So that's, that was different from other methodologies. Methodologies, uh, for example, molecular clocks or even this that to calibrate by hand, I would say. In incorporate some other uh, areas of uncertainty in the analysis, yeah. Uh, <laughs> It may be a good time too to just for in phylogenetics, there's kind of a uh, a statistical a test of how variable the statistical uh, the the most likely tree is, and that's the bootstrap or jackknife values. Maybe you could for someone that's not familiar with it, that may be a kind of a foreign concept. Maybe you can explain what that is and why it's so low usually in turtle phylogenies. Yeah, well. The, these bootstrap and jackknives are um, uh, are resample uh, methodologies to see um, um, how how well supported a clade is. So we run we run our cladistic analysis using parsimony. You can use TMT or um, the other. What is the name? Uh, I don't remember now. I use TMT usually. Um, so you run reanalysis and you get your most parsimonious trees, but you don't know exactly how well supported your clades are. Okay, they are supported because, of course, you have some uh, characters supporting those clades, but you don't know if one clade has more support than other clades. So after running your cladistic analysis, you run this bootstrap or shacknive uh, resampling that uh, is not a cladistic analysis. We need to keep in mind that it's not that we can use those trees as uh, evolutionary trees, hmm? because I've seen those kind of trees as uh, examples of evolutionary trees, but they are not. They are just, they give us some um, information about the um, 
how much information we have for certain groups. So once you run the analysis, the bootstrap, uh, you will get a, a resampling of the characters, like, um, of course, randomly, and you will create a new matrix with the same amount of characters that your, your original matrix. With Jackknife, is, um, you will get a smaller matrix because it's not with a... Um, it's not with the, I would say, to re with the replacement of the characters. So you will get you will get new matrices, and then you will make this. Um, you will run again the the analysis, and you will get numbers as you were saying, and you will put those numbers as uh, measurements of support of your clades. And of course, they are from zero to uh, one hundred. And you will put the, all the numbers in your nodes. Um, why we get so low uh, bootstrap or jackknife or even Bremer supports in, in our trees is uh, mainly because we are incorporating fossils. Uh, as I was telling before, fossils usually are not found um, complete. So we don't have, we have many missing data in our matrices. And right. in the resampling, when you run the resampling, sometimes you don't get the clades <laughs> because the, uh, the characters that were sampled were not including the taxa that we wanted. So that's why we get uh, uh, so bad uh, bootstrap, jackknife, and uh, Bremer supports. If we run the analysis only with extant taxa, uh, for sure the, the, um, the, those values will be much better. Yeah, still not perfect, but but uh, higher because yeah, like you said, you you got certain fossils where you've got really fragmentary material and that 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 sort of makes the confidence go down on, on certain relationships yeah. um yeah I, I think sort of maybe we can shift focus to um it, it's kind of interesting looking through your work you, you've done work with sort of the global turtle phylogeny mm -hmm. and then specifically with clear Dira, and then with Kelidae, pan Kelidae specifically within that that clade so it sort of goes down the tree which is cool <laughs> um but maybe we can shift a bit of focus to pleurodira and sort of biogeography of that group uh it, sort of a, a fascinating uh group of turtles kind of a lesser uh species group of of all turtles mm -hmm. uh but a, a rich uh fossil history and, and um biogeographic history uh one that's real interesting with that is uh, the Arimnicellis, Peltocephalus, Podocnemus group, and just how they got into the situation they're in biogeographically. Uh, what do you think? So, what is known about that group and how they're related, and how how they what events led to their current distribution? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, that's another example of these the maybe differences between molecules and morphology that we were talking about before. Um, well, lately, it's uh, the, the late, latest, I would say, uh, molecular analysis about the polognomidids. Um, 
show a close relationship between Podognimis and Erymnochilis, as forming a, a clade, and outside Peltocephalus. So um, if we see that, maybe it doesn't, in between brackets again, <laughs> doesn't make sense from a biogeographic uh, point of view. Uh, but okay, molecules are suggesting the, those kind of relationships. So, of course, uh, what we need to do first is to run the, the phylogenetic analysis and then um, evaluate the biogeographic history of a group, okay? Because um, biogeography itself is not a character uh, in, in an evolutionary tree. It's just the location of the species. So they are. this is uh, secondary evidence. Um, so we need to focus on the uh, phylogeny. And in this case, uh, it's weird that, okay, the South American uh, podognomides are um, or, or have inside this uh, species from Madagascar. So we need to explore what happened there. Maybe it was a dispersal because um, South America and Africa and Madagascar were separated well before. <laughs> it was uh, around 110 million years. So it's really, really far away, the, the split of those continents. Um, and this molecular dating, uh, they are saying that the split was in the late Cretaceous, but it's much later than 110 million years ago. So I think we need to consider, like, um, first the, the phylogenetic evidence and then try to, to see um, uh, the biogeographic evidence. And of course, in this molecular data, they don't consider uh, fossils. Um, so it would be good to make a, like a, a total evidence analysis to see, to, to include fossils and more morphological evidence, of course. Um, so, yeah. So, so it's kind of an open question, uh, yeah. the, the relationship there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, yeah I would say that <laughs> most are open questions. It's, um, that's, I think, fascinating about, uh, I would say research or science in general, that uh, we don't have the last word in, in any uh, of the things. They are just phylogenetic analysis. They are just hypotheses. So if we include more evidence, there will be, I don't know, new fossils or new characters. Uh, we sequence new molecules and we include it again in, in a bigger analysis, we, we can get new results and that's fine. I think we should um, keep that in mind, that a, a phylogenetic tree is just a hypothesis. So it should be tested with a new, new analysis. Right. Um, so with the Pleuridires 2, uh, the morphology, I know there was, I, I forget who the author was, but at some point, and I, I don't, it's not the case now, but um, 
at some point there was some debate about whether clear dyer was uh, paraphyletic or not monophyletic. Uh, the some of the characters that were con are used with that group a lot, like the length of the vertebrae and such, and the 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 movement of the joint, the jaw doctor, and the the skull, that kind of thing. Those were not informative characters. But that's sort of outdated at this point. Uh, well, it's in, in this that um, I was saying before about the kilids and the long neck kilids. And there is still a debate because if these long necks are um, synapomorphic for a clade or if they, they were developed in parallel, uh, by two different clades, like this Chelodyna in, in Australasia and Hydromedusa and Chilus in South America. Um, so I think they are still like open questions related with this, um, with the chelids. Um, and with Pleurodiers, the, um, there was also like um, some of these basal uh, turtles, uh, paleocersis or uh, proterocersis that were considered in the lineage of pleurodires because um, they were described as having a sutured uh, pelvis to the shell. Um, but nowadays, with, with this new analysis, we see that, for example, proterocersis has a sutured uh, um, pelvis, but they are they do not belong to the lineage of Clarodiers. They are much more basal. And paleocarsis, we we studied the specimens and now I can confirm that the pelvis is not sutured uh, to the shell. So they they are basal as well. Okay, so it's almost like I, it probably wouldn't be right to say, so it, it, it that is an informative that the pelvic fusion is something that's in, it's an informative character for the monopoly of clear dyers. But if you take it with respect to stem turtles, it becomes homoplasius. It wouldn't be useful. Well, it is it's useful anyway because you will have it as a synapomorphy for pleurodiers. Mm -hmm. and we have it as um, as another character. Uh, in this case, um, a synapomorphy for proterocarsids as well. Okay. So it could be a synapomorphy, like in two different um, places in the tree. But okay, they are those characters are homoplastic. Okay, they they right, evolve right. independently in those two clades. Um, and maybe, yeah, uh, you need to see in more detail if, I don't know, if um, they are exactly the same, uh, how the pelvis is sutured or how the pelvis or the shape of the pelvis is, if it is the same or not. Um, so they might not be exactly the same, but uh, if we see the character um sutured pelvis it will be like a scored present for pleurodiers and for for proterocarsids 
That that brings up an interesting question too. How much does nuance go into the the character for morphology for fossils? Like you said, it, it could be there could be slight differences. Are there a lot of characters now that you think are scored as the same thing but are actually slightly different? And it Yeah, well, um the thing with the matrix or any cladistic analysis is that you revisit the matrix all the time because um, I don't know you a new fossil is discovered or you have seen a new another collection that you haven't visited before and there are fossils that you can observe uh, firsthand or extant turtles that you can observe uh, first uh, hand and they can change your interpretation of some characters. So I would say that it's a good practice to come back to the matrix and to um, critically <laughs> see the matrices and the characters and to see, okay, this character is scored as the same in, in pleurodirs and proterocarcids, but it's actually the same or not? Are there differences? Can we see maybe to split this character or is it useful this way? So um, I think it's, uh, it's something that we do all the time. When we work with a new uh, turtle, we usually revise the, the matrix uh, and revise the characters. And sometimes uh, you have a new species that, for example, you have a character well-defined with two states and your turtle has neither of those two sta uh, states. So you need to add a new state. Um, so, yeah, I think it's, um, it's healthy <laughs> uh, to do that and to revise all the time the, the matrices. That's, that's, yeah, that's, I think, good advice. Uh, in, in kind of going into one more sort of topic, and then we mm -hmm. can kind of wrap things up. But um, talking about, uh, I'm curious, first of all, what you think, if uh, the what the most likely scenario for the long neck and short neck, is it is it, a, uh, they're mostly related on each continent? Or is it long necks <laughs> together and short necks <laughs> together? What, what do you think is the most likely? Uh, what a hard question. Um, the thing is, um, when when they, uh, you are not the only one that asks those questions to me, but also with the origin of turtles. And um, for me, it's not, I'm not stick to one of the two hypotheses. It's not like, oh, I believe this is uh, the answer and I will pursue, <laughs> uh, I will look for the characters to be like that and uh, no, otherwise it's not correct. No, I think uh, it should be the other way around. We should like uh, to see the turtles, to see the morphology, to see the molecules, to see the fossil record, to see the extant ones and um, try to put all the information together and uh, 
incorporate it in a matrix and run the analysis. Because if we have like a, a preconceived idea about how the evolution was, for sure you will look for uh, that to be true. And I, I don't like that kind of, um, like I would say, way of thinking. I just prefer to be try to be because it's it's difficult as well. Try to be as um, not to have an idea in my mind, just to see the morphology and uh, get as much information as I can and test it in, for example, in a phylogenetic context. That's. Uh, that's how I think, and I try to to be like that, not to have a preconcept of evolution in my mind and to fit the evidence in that preconcept. I don't know if I explained myself, um, but yeah, I try to do that. It's like um, so, it, it it sort of you don't think that there's enough data necessarily to say one thing or the other and and then yeah that's sort of you don't want to introduce bias right yeah well nowadays i'm i'm working in a in a total evidence analysis of these keylids um gathering information and for me we don't have yet a, a, like um, a, a large morphological matrix for Keylids, um, they do not include many characters and they do not include enough extinct and extant taxa. Um, so every time that we add a new species, mainly extinct species, the phylogeny <laughs> like breaks because it, uh, it's a disaster. So I think we don't have the, the phylogeny is not stable yet, so I think we need to look for more information. So I'm doing that um, nowadays to gather more morphological information um, on extant uh, keylids and also including extinct uh, to see if we can make it more stable. And if we can make it more stable to uh, include also molecular data and have like a total evidence uh, analysis uh, because nowadays it's, it's really, really unstable. Both, uh, no, no both, sorry. The molecular is very stable with these two clades from the two continents, but the morphological is still really, really weak. Um, yeah. Yeah, and you want those lines of evidence to converge. So that's future future project, art, current, yeah. ongoing. All right, exciting stuff to look forward to. <laughs> um, it, it, sort of the last thing, like you said, uh, you do the phylogenetics, but then you have to sort of contextualize that with the biogeography. And Gondwana and the breakup of Gondwana uh, is the thing that's hypothesized to have driven a lot of keelid keelid specific evolution um yeah. but then when i'm thinking about that it's like okay that 
that's interesting, but it's so broad that it's almost not interesting. But in uh, a book that uh, you co-authored on the evolution of, mm-hmm. of uh, Plyrodires and uh, South American turtles, you go in pretty good detail with the uplift of different mountain ranges and volcanic activity that could have led to the diversification of the keelids. How much is known about those specific things? And are there any specific instances in, in the history of Gondwana that ha- maybe had a disproportionate effect on the diversification of keelids? Mm-hmm. Well, um, this, the, like the main hypothesis is that these uh, pelomedosoids were like um, originated and diversified in the north part of Gondwana while kilids were uh, diversified and originated in the southern part of Gondwana. Um, And there are some studies that uh, define that between these two regions, there were like um, a big desert and also some basaltic uh, rocks uh, that are more or less coincident with this origin of these two clades. So that could be one. Um, and then, of course, we need to see <laughs> how is the history about these gilets, if they are actually two monophyletic groups or um, representing the two continents or not, because that would in, in, uh, um, involve different processes and different uh, ways of uh, distribution, right? So um, if we don't have like a, a stable phylogeny or phylogeny that, uh, yeah, I would say a stable, that stable means that you run new analysis and the topology remains more or less the same when you include new species or new data. So with the kilids, maybe we are not there yet. Um, so it will depend on the topology of the tree. But of course, uh, in this southern Gondwana, we have the, the separation of South America from Antarctica, that it was in the, in the Eocene, more or less, between the Eocene and Oligocene. But Antarctica from Australia was, uh, was separated well before that. So uh, the history when all these continents were together was more or less in the Cretaceous. So it's a long history that uh, Australia is not connected to Antarctica. Um, so if we consider that this, the South American Kilids and the Australasian Kilids are two groups, the um, the revolutionary history um, of this is separated since many, many million years ago, like from the late Cretaceous. It's really interesting to think about how if, if there was uh, just the evolution of, of long and short neck turtles is fascinating to me. It's like it, for those two conditions to arise independently, if that was the case, it seems like it couldn't be completely mutually exclusive. Like there has to be some kind of inertia in those groups. They split, but there was already something going on where you had 
a divergence and then it, it sort of duplicated when you had them split between the different continents once they were separated. Uh, but that's upcoming analysis. Um, I, I think that's sort of, uh, that's, uh, I think we've covered a lot of things and it was a really interesting discussion. Uh, we, we liked at the end to do a little uh, turtle trivia like volley. I forgot to mention this in my email. Mm. I've, I've been doing that lately, but it's just a way to bring in obscure turtle facts. Uh, if you have some random turtle facts, fossil turtle facts or anything, uh, and you want to toss some our way, we can try to answer them or we can toss you some questions uh, or we don't have to do it, but just kind of a fun <laughs> way. Uh, yeah, you, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Normally I like to tell people in advance it's tough to put them on the um, spot, but yeah. Yeah, because now I, I need to think about, uh, I, if you want, we can do it uh, later and I can send you uh, some and... Um, I don't know if there is a space to do it uh, that people can do it or you can do it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, In we can. Uh, format. Yeah, we, yeah, we can do that. If you send me a list, uh, it's sort of a. I don't think we really have a format for this, so I, I could literally just at the end attach the questions. People can read them on the screen and then try to figure them out for themselves. If they yeah, can't yeah. figure it out, search it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we can do that. You you tell me and have no problem. All right, cool. Yeah, if, yeah, you just, yeah, just uh, we'll, we'll keep in touch about that. I'll get the. Uh, all right, that sounds good. Well, uh, uh, Jack, unless you have anything else uh, you want to go into, or no, I'm good today. That was this is really interesting. Thank you for uh, <laughs> thank you for sharing with us. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Sterley. Uh, it's been awesome. Uh, I'm same boat here. I've learned quite a bit. It's real interesting to think about a lot of stuff. And I, 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 uh, I admire your sort of objective position on a lot of things. Like you're not quick to jump to any conclusion about something, which I think is really good for scientific reasoning. Uh, so, yeah, thank you for coming on. Thank you for the invitation. It was really nice to, to talk to you about uh, turtles. And <laughs> of course, fossil turtles are uh, like my focus in research. But I, of course, I, I enjoy uh, speaking about turtles in, in general. So it's been great. Thank you. Cool. And I actually do, we have one more question we'd like to close with. Uh, if you have one piece of advice for someone looking to make turtle research part of a career, what, what would that be? Well, I think uh, turtles are really, really interesting uh, topic to do research. And there are many, many things to be done. Of course, I know more about, uh, and I will focus more about fossil turtles and phylogeny. So I think there are many interesting topics to, to develop. Um, if you like more like anatomy, you can do uh, to explore different groups. There are many groups of turtles that un are understudied. So I think if someone is passionate about turtles or they want to do research in general, I would recommend turtles 
a lot because they they are really really interesting and there are many topics and interesting topics um, of course the origin is one of them but each group has its own um, I would say big questions to be uh, solved so I I recommend turtles <laughs> all uh, like for all cool <laughs> good advice <laughs> all right well, thanks for coming on thank you all right uh, for all the listeners out there you can find more ColoniaCast at the turtle room.org slash we'll see you on the next uh discussion <laughs>